welcome to the latest edition of the RBC podcast, Veterinary Science on the Move. My name's Mark Cleesby and today I'm talking with Dr Rachel Lawrence about her research interests in parasitic worm diseases of humans, specifically filariasis, and the role that the immune system plays in pathology. Okay, Rachel, thanks very much for joining us today. What is the significance of helminth infections for humans or animals? So in terms of human disease worldwide, there are a number of different types of helminth diseases, but the gut-dwelling worms make up about 2 billion infected people worldwide. Things like filarial nematodes, there's about 160 million people infected, and schistosomes, there's about 207 million people infected. So I I read something this morning, actually, that of people who earn under about £2 a day, that there's basically a third of that population who are infected with worms. In terms of animals, I know a little less about that, but undoubtedly helminth diseases are very important in veterinary medicine. They're obviously primarily diseases of the the third world with regard to to humans. What uh, particular helminth infections are you interested in yourself? So the disease that I work on in particular is called lymphatic filariasis and that's a filarial nematode. So the actual human disease that I work on, there's about 120 million people infected. There are some closely related diseases like onchocerciasis where there are less people infected, about 40 million. And There is a fairly similar veterinary problem called diaphilaria imitus, which is the dog heartworm, which has a similar life cycle to lymphatic filariasis. Okay, so how do they set up an infection? How do the humans or animals pick up these worms? So in terms of lymphatic filariasis, it's a worm that's transmitted by mosquito. It's found in... Sub-Saharan Africa, in India, in Southeast Asia. There's actually three different human nematodes that cause disease. The one that's found mainly in Africa is called Wushuria bancrofti. Then in Southeast Asia there's Brugia malayi, and there's a much less common Brugia species in humans called Brugia timori, which is found in the islands in and around Timor. So the actual life cycle is that infected people have what's called the microfilarial stage in their bloodstream, which is the L1 stage of a nematode. So all nematodes have five stages to their life cycle. Mm -hmm. They have L1s, L2, L3, L4, L5. So in the filarial nematodes, the L1 stage is called a microfilari. In the case of lymphatic filariasis, it circulates in the blood. When a mosquito bites the microfilari taken up in the blood meal, within about 24 hours they move from the gut into the flight muscles of the mosquito. Mm-hmm. And then they, they molt to the L2 stage, and then over a period of two weeks they molt to the L3 stage. So once they've become an L3 stage, that's actually the infective larval stage, and that migrates from the flight muscles down through the head into the proboscis, so that when a mosquito next bites 
the host, it can transmit the infective stage L3 larvae. Okay, so we're still talking about tiny so, yeah. microscopic worms at this stage. Yeah, you can actually see the L3 by eye, mm -hmm. but um, so it's a, a couple of millimetres long, I think. The L3 then migrates through the bite wound made by the mosquito and goes through the subcutaneous tissue and it makes its way into the lymphatic vessels. The L3 then molts to an L4 stage and that's usually in the afferent lymphatic of a lymph node and the worms kind of get stuck in the lymph node because they can't, they're too big to get across the lymph node so they stay in that afferent lymphatic vessel and then by about 25 days they molt to a L5 or adult stage and they're separate sexes so there are male and female worms and they have to find each other in that afferent lymphatic mate and then they produce millions of microfilaria. The eggs actually hatch within the uterus of the adult female so you get live L1 stage microfilaria being released mm -hmm. and those millions of microfilaria go from the lymphatic presumably via the thoracic duct back into the bloodstream. So then you get microfilaria in the bloodstream. What sort of pathology is being associated with this lymphatic collection? People when they're first infected they tend to get fevers, they can get lymphangitis where you get renewal of, of lymph vessels, you get swelling of lymph nodes and, and lymphatics, dilation of the lymphatics. And in later stages of disease, you tend to get edema, so fluid retention, particularly in the limbs, particularly in the legs. You can get a condition called hydrocele, where you get fluid retention in the scrotal sac, and you can get fibrosis associated with the enlarged limbs. Okay, so I guess some people may well have heard of uh, elephantiasis, which is yeah. a filarial disease then? Yes, exactly. So elephantiasis is one of the most severe forms of pathology and is obviously very debilitating and can, in some circumstances, cause a lot of social stigma as well. Mm -hmm. These infections have obviously been around for a long time. What mechanisms has the body developed to try and combat these infections? So, so actually... Filariasis is very interesting in terms of the immune response in that there's a whole spectrum of different responses to disease in an endemic area. So the way in which your body reacts to disease determines the outcome of infection. Mm -hmm. In an endemic area, there are several different disease states that you see so in actual fact, in endemic area where people are, in endemic areas, people are being bitten about 100 times a day by infected mosquito bites. So you have to have a pretty high level of transmissible bites in order to get the disease. Mm. But it, even regardless of that, some people, maybe about 15% of people in an endemic area, actually don't develop disease. So those people we call them endemic normals, and they seem to be resistant to disease. We suspect that they're probably resistant to the incoming L3 larvae, so they never develop disease at all. The vast majority of people, say approximately 70% of people in an endemic area, 
have lots of microflora in their bloodstream, but they don't have pathology. So they seem to be in some sort of state of immunological tolerance mm -hmm. to the parasite. And they have generally very depressed immune responses. So it seems to be a, a co-evolution between the parasite and the human population over time that the parasite is happily sitting in the people without developing a pathological response, but also the, the humans aren't getting rid of the infection either. Then you have these unfortunate individuals who get chronic pathology characterized by edema and the development of elephantiasis or hydrocele. And those people, in general, don't have microfilari in their bloodstream. So they appear to be immune to some stage of, of the nematode. We think that they can probably kill adult worms because generally they don't have adult worms in their lymphatics, but they might be having some sort of hyper-response then to the incoming L3s that they're constantly being challenged with. So we think that the immune response that is killing the incoming parasite and is capable of killing adults as well is probably part of the development of pathology. As an interesting corollary to that, in, in places like Indonesia where you've had forced movement, enforced movements of people from non-endemic areas to endemic areas, or when you've had things like Western military forces going into endemic areas, those, those people who come from a non-endemic area into an, an endemic area generally get immediate development of quite severe pathology because they seem to be able to fight the worm and kill it, but then they're producing this immunopathology. Right, so in that situation, obviously, the immune response is not actually beneficial to the, uh, the victim, if you like. Yeah. So what sort of immune responses are actually being evoked by these uh, microfilaria? Well, actually, it's interesting in that the microfilaria seem to evoke a slightly different immune response from the adult worms and the infective stage larvae. As you probably know, that the immune response is divided into two general adaptive pathways, the type 1 pathway and the type 2 pathway. The type 1 pathway has a more inflammatory role with T helper 1 cells induced and gamma interferon release. And the T helper 2 pathway, you get a lot of the antibody IgE, you get lots of eosinophils induced, you get lots of mast cells. And so helminths in general tend to induce type 2 pathways with lots of eosinophils, IgE and mast cells are very characteristic of helminth infection. So lymphatic filarial nematodes are no exception in terms of L3 in adults. Those type 2 responses are induced. But actually the microfilari tend to induce quite a strong inflammatory response as well. And interestingly, but also unfortunately making study of the disease much more complicated, filarial nematodes have a symbiotic bacteria called Wolbachia, 
there are many millions of this Wolbachia bacteria in them, and Mike Flurry seemed to have an awful lot of those and to release those quite a lot. So the release of this Wolbachia end endosymbiont, it's thought by many people that that has a role in the pathology, that it may be increasing inflammation on top of damage that's been done to the lymphatics by the adult worms. Mm -hmm. So these are components of the adaptive immune response and also presumably there's a, a role of the innate immune response in many helminth infections as well. Mm -hmm. In terms of innate immune responses, there's a lot of work going on at the moment on things like toll-like receptors which are components of innate immune response. There's lots of different what we call pattern recognition receptors where there are receptors in the body that recognize things that are structures found on pathogens that are not found on mammalian cells. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly interested in something called mannose binding lectin, which is a soluble pattern recognition receptor that's released by the liver that is part of the acute phase response. And it also forms an important component of the complement pathway. So when I was at college, we learnt about the classical complement pathway and the alternate complement pathway. Now we know there's another pathway that can be initiated by molecules like mannose binding lectin. So mannose binding lectin can recognize sugars on the surface of pathogens like mannose which aren't normally expressed or aren't normally seen on mammalian cells. Mm -hmm. Mannose binding lectin will bind those carbohydrate structures and then it can initiate the complement pathway. Apart from that, mannose binding lectin is also important as an opsonin so it can increase phagocytosis of things like bacteria or, and or antigens from something as large as a helminth parasite. So, so our interest in, in mannose binding lectin was triggered by the fact that we had some mice that had been genetically manipulated so that they don't have MBL and we found that microfilaria survive much longer in the bloodstream of, of those mice. Mm -hmm. Apart from that being very interesting in terms of helminth infection, it was also interesting in that people hadn't really looked at the role of mannose binding lectin in the whole immune response. So we were able to study these mice and see how lack of MBL affected other parts of the immune response. And one of the things we found was that there's very low levels of an antibody called IgM, which is specific for the parasite. And, and later work suggests that in the absence of mannose binding lectin, there's a particular carbohydrate or glycans on, on the nematode that is not recognized, so it doesn't trigger a protective response. And Really interestingly, mannose binding lectin polymorphisms where you have low levels of mannose binding lectin in human populations is an extremely common polymorphism. And just recently there's been a paper published in human populations that MBL polymorphisms which lead to low or absent MBL in humans is also 
associated with recurrence of filarial nematode infection after drug treatment. So what we've shown in the mouse has now essentially been corroborated in human infection. So it's actually quite an exciting time in terms of MBL biology and enfilariasis. Okay, so basically it looks like this receptor may determine the success of an infection or how well it avoids the immune system. Yeah, and very interestingly, it, it's because MBL recognises sugars or glycans, it's one of the first examples where an immune response to something that is a glycan rather than a protein may be the specific response that you need to induce. So obviously, therefore, in, in certain individuals, it's possible for these uh, infections to persist, but not in others. Now, obviously, differences in the, in the people in terms of MBL, for example, may be responsible for this, but presumably also the uh, filaria themselves have evolved to try and evade some of these immune systems. So how might this actually happen? Well, so actually, filarial nematodes have a huge amount of different methods by which they can evade the immune response. They have things like antioxidant enzymes like um, superoxide dismutase, catalase, glutathione peroxidase, which they can evade the toxic mediators released by eosinophils or neutrophils. Mm -hmm. They have, as I talked about a bit earlier, they downregulate responses and they, they can do that by inducing T regulatory cells. They're also known to induce something called alternate activated macrophages which are less good at presenting antigen and, and stimulating type 1 responses. They produce their own downregulatory molecules like TGF-beta and something called MIF macrophage inhibition factor, although we don't know yet whether those parasite-produced molecules are actually having the same effect in the host as the host-produced molecules. They produce protease inhibitors, which can stop processing of antigen. And they have something called phosphorylcholine linked to some of their antigens. And phosphorylcholine on antigens seems to have a downregulatory capacity on, on lots of things like T-cell proliferation, B-cell proliferation. In terms of microfilari specifically, one of the aspects of their biology that we don't quite understand is that they have what's called a circadian periodicity. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that the microfilaria are found in the bloodstream, but in actual fact, what happens is that the microfilaria are found mainly in the bloodstream um, for a couple of hours in the day. So there are strains of parasite that are called nocturnally periodic or they're diurnally periodic. So obviously nocturnally periodic strains, the microfilaria are found in the bloodstream for a couple of hours at night and diurnally they're found during the day. Mm. But the fascinating aspect of, of the biology is that you get nocturnally periodic strains of the parasite where you have night-biting mosquitoes and diurnally periodic strains of the parasites where you have day-biting mosquitoes. So the parasite and the mosquitoes have also co-evolved to maximize transmission. Mm. People have done quite a lot of work 
particularly in the 50s, to try and find out the basis of that periodicity. And we, we don't really know, to be honest. Someone called Frank Hawking did an awful lot of work in the 50s. He's actually Stephen Hawking's father, so mm-hmm. filarial nematodes do have an illustrious past. <laughs> but recently I, I have a PhD student who's been working on the interaction of microfilaria with endothelial cells, and we found that microfilaria can actually stick to endothelial cells, generally by one end, and it doesn't seem to matter whether it's anterior or posterior end. And we've been looking at what increases that adherence and what can decrease it. Essentially, we found that a complement component of, of human sera will massively increase that adherence. So it may be that Mike Flurry used this kind of sequestering, the sticking to endothelial cells in, in the capillaries of the lung, which is where they tend to spend their time when they're not in the peripheral blood. They may use that as some sort of avoidance mechanism of something they don't like in the periphery. But, mm. I mean, really, it's a bit of a black hole and we don't know whether they're just saving energy, whether they're trying to avoid something that's in the periphery or what exactly is going on. Okay, so I guess the reasoning could be that when they're not looking to uh, invade a mosquito, that they're just trying to stay away from the body's defences in that way. Yeah. So these sorts of mechanisms that you're uh, beginning to sort of unpick, what sort of prospects do we have in the future to try and design better treatments or preventive strategies for microfilarial infections? Well, so, so a lot of people have been doing an awful lot of work on filarial and helminth infections in general. And what's come out of this huge body of work, really, is, is that between different helminth species, different parts of the immune response are needed for killing. Mm-hmm. So you have a gut-dwelling nematode where eosinophils may be important. You have another one where mast cells may be important. So it's, it seems that um, the actual immune response needed for killing a particular parasite is completely different. It's still T-type 2 mediated, but it seems to be absolutely specific for the parasite. Not only that, it, it's specific between different parasite stages. So, mm. for example, I was saying that microfilaria in adult worms and L3s actually induce different types of responses. So, consequently, microfilaria can be killed by eosinophils in a primary infection, whereas adult worms aren't. Even within the same species of nematode, you can have different immunological mechanisms needed for killing. What people have been striving towards is is towards finding particular antigens that they can group together as vaccines and deliver the right type of immune response for that parasite. Increasingly, we have only a few drugs that are capable of killing helminth parasites, and there's increasing resistance, particularly in in veterinary species, to a lot of those anti-helminthic drugs. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge amount of work going on on 
looking for specific antigens. Lots of parasites' um, genomes have been elucidated. The parasite I work on is, is one of those. In terms of, of veterinary medicine, that is slightly problematic, I would say, at the moment, because there have been some helminth vaccines that have been produced against single antigens in the case of Tinea ovis. But the vaccine was taken off the market eventually because farmers have got used to drugs like ivermectin, which will kill multiple helminth species as well as be useful against things like ticks. So mm. the vaccine approach is slightly problematic in that we need to have a new mindset eventually if, if we can't develop new chemotherapeutic drugs that are effective against multiple organisms. We may have to start treating diseases as, as single diseases and developing very specific drugs or vaccines that can target those particular organisms. So we have to face the prospect that uh, this is going to be uh, a potentially expensive problem, I guess. I think that's right. And uh, in terms of uh, lymphatic filariasis, there is actually a global eradication program which is due to finish in 2020, I think, where people have tried to deliver ivermectin and albendazole in all endemic areas in the world. And so really that is currently a race against time, considering that we've seen a lot of resistance to ivermectin in veterinary species. We need to um, make sure that that pr program can be completed before any resistance appears in the human population. Okay, well, a lot of challenges there for the future, but thank you very much indeed for your input. Thank you, Mike. And thank you very much for listening to this latest podcast. We hope very much you'll be able to join us again next time. In the meantime, if you have any comments or suggestions on the podcasts, please feel free to email us at podcast.rbc.ac.uk. Thanks again.